This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Shares of Tesla, a little bit lower today. This is the blows keep coming and coming and coming. Today, Barclays warning, in fact, it may become a niche luxury car maker. Let's talk about this with Dana Hall. She's technology reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone from San Francisco, our San Francisco Bureau specifically. Also back with us on the phone from Santa Monica, Ross Gerber, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. Uh, owner of both a Tesla uh, car as well as Tesla stock. So, Dana, lay it out for us. Uh, I feel like it's been a le- like the last week or two has really been a tough one when it comes to Tesla, blow after blow. Yeah, you've just had a lot of you know Wall Street analysts uh, and sell side analysts who cover the company downgrading the either downgrading the stock or lowering their price targets. Brian Johnson of Barclays has been fairly bearish on Tesla, you know, all along, uh, but he did lower his price target again, and he just sort of laid out again, you know, why why the bear, why he thinks the bear case is sort of gaining steam largely around this question of of demand for the Model Three, and uh, you know, his contention is that you know maybe Tesla doesn't really go ma- become a mass market. Maybe it just stays an an inch player. All right. So the bears are growling even louder. Ross Gerber, you're a bull, man. So come on in and tell us why they're wrong. The premise is absurd. You know, first of all, across the world, there's a movement that is enormous to reverse the effects of climate change. And there's only one way humans can do this really easily and effectively, which is changing the way they move themselves around a city and using electric vehicles is an incredibly efficient way to make a, a difference in your carbon impact. And um, concerning what we're seeing weather-wise across the world, as well as the impacts on our civilization and the actual costs, countries other than the United States, which has taken a horribly regressive turn towards oil and coal, everybody else in the world is, is doing the exact opposite. So the demand for not only Tesla EVs, but EVs in general is, you know, they just can't fill the, the orders for the cars that are being ordered from every car manufacturer in this area. And, and I think that's the biggest challenge Tesla faces, which is can they fill the demand, not whether the demand exists. Well, but Ross, isn't one of the arguments in, in part building on exactly what you just said, which is the demand is there, but maybe Tesla's going to get either outflanked or just overpowered by, by other car makers who, who might be by able who? to get there. Well, you tell me. Oh, wait. I'm come- telling you, like, there's not one EV that's out today that even compares to the Tesla. I just recently drove the e-tron and the I-Pace, and, and, and I did think the I-Pace was a nice car. Um, but see, the legacy automakers have done this backwards. They're building cars and at the same cars and adding an electric version of it, but they haven't fundamentally changed the DNA of their companies. And what Tesla is is it's a technology company that builds EV cars, and you cannot 
talk about Tesla and not understand the enormous advancement in technology that's in the car itself, whether it's self-driving and autopilot, um, to just the way the car works on a day-to-day basis, it's it's just a game changer in the auto industry. So, you know, no car that I've gone into has any technology in it at all. Well, let me just, well, let me throw out one company that Bloomberg Businessweek profiled, and this is over in China, BYD Company, number one producer of plug-in vehicles globally. I get what you're saying, and Dana, come on in on this too, because... I understand what you're saying in terms of the type of car that Tesla is putting out there, but not everybody can own a Maserati, and I think that's what's it's tough. It's a forty thousand right? dollar but, car. Well, oh, come on, Dan, it's a forty thousand dollar car. You can go onto the website, go on right now. You're sitting in front of your computer. Go to Tesla.com. You can buy this car for forty thousand dollars. It is not a niche luxury player. That is the Model S and the Model D- X. All right, the wait, Model wait, wait. hold on. It's a mass-produced vehicle. Dana, come on in on that mass production argument, which which for so long I feel like Elon Musk himself has said that this is, you know, kind of an important part of the Tesla story. Where are we on that? Well, so, so what's happened recently is that for years we heard about Tesla's going to bring out this $35,000 car to the masses. The truth is that you can't order the $35,000 car online. It's off-menu. They've already raised the price, and what they're really pushing is the higher-end version of the Model 3 that's more like $40,000, as Ross suggests. It will be mass market when there are hundreds of thousands of the Model 3 on the road. It is the best-selling EV in the United States right now, but in the first quarter, they delivered 63,000 of them, and the reason why you're seeing these price targets come down is because everyone is questioning whether they're going to hit their guidance of 90,000 to 100,000 cars for the second quarter. There may there may be very well be the demand, but we've known we've learned from these like sort of leaked emails from Elon Musk over this last week that they're still pushing to sort of figure out the logistics. And that's what right. I think is important about Tesla's, you know, Tesla's challenges, it's the, the competition from other automakers is overblown. The, the real challenge is just their own internal stuff. Like, exactly. they've never done this before. They've never delivered on three continents simultaneously. Right. Like, just ironing out the logistics of getting cars on boats and ships and trucking them to different parts of the country, like, that is still very much a work in progress. So, Elon is kind of hinting, like, you know, we, we, we might have the best quarter ever if we can iron out all this stuff. So, I don't know whether he's sandbagging or just lowering expectations. But that's why you're seeing the downgrades. Like people, a lot of Wall Street analysts are very skeptical right. that Tesla is going to hit the, their numbers this quarter. Hey, Ross, quick question 20 seconds. Have you been buying on the dip? Well, yes, but we've been, a lot of what we're buying right now is the debt, actually, okay. the convertible debt, the 2022 debt, because I can get a nice uh, sort of guarantee backed by you know, the gigafactory and everything else, and I can get all the upside of the stock once it breaks past right. 320. Okay. Um, but we're, we're buyers of the stock in small amounts here for higher-risk clients. Okay. But I think what was said is very accurate. They are trying to do a very challenging thing right now, and got that's it. the risk. we got to run. Hey, great to spend some time with you. Ross Gerber, President and CEO of our Gerber Kawasaki, on the phone from Santa Monica, California. And, of course, our Dana Hall, technology reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at Dana Hall. In terms of debt on the balance sheet for Tesla, almost $13 billion. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. All right, a little B-52s to kick it up a notch here on a Thursday afternoon. So what do we do 
in a choppy market. You outlined what's going on with the VIX, Run Carol, the just a few minutes ago. Run no, for the hills. Well, that. you got to do something with your money. Uh, Jeff Meeker, he's here to answer that question. He's the chief client officer down at Hamilton Lane, uh, based down near Motown, Philly, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jeff, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So we've been looking at this market. You know, you walked into the studio. We looked. It's flat. Flat feels sort of good right now, given all the volatility uh, that we've seen. But as you talk to clients, and you guys have a lot of them uh, over a, a bunch of different asset classes, what advice are you giving them to sort of ride this out? Yeah, so I'll start with the the first question, actually questions one, two, and three we hear from investors today, is some version of uh, volatility's picked up, uh, the world's going to end, the markets are going to turn, and what do I do with my private markets portfolio? Yeah. So this is the, the single most common thing that we spend time on. And I'll jump right to the spoiler, and that is stay the course. Uh, and the other is the single worst thing you can do is to stop committing to the asset class. Well, Jeff, do you also remind them that historically volatility is still way low? It is. And the thing that people, I think, misunderstand about the private markets, and this is important, is when you look at the public markets, and we looked over the last 30 years. And what do you mean specifically by private markets? So private markets is really defined by structure. So it it could be equity, it could be credit, it could be venture capital, real estate. It's in a private structure. Got it. So when we think private markets versus public, if you look at the last 30 years and you look at volatile times in the public markets, it's no surprise, I think, to anyone that the worst performing times are when volatility is the highest in the public markets. If you go into the private markets, what you're looking for is outperformance versus the public markets. And so you look at the same 30 years, and whether it's high volatility times, low volatility times, or something in the middle, the outperformance in the private markets is the same. It's remarkably consistent. So what you're looking to get from private markets is that outperformance at least historically, the last 30 years, it hasn't mattered how volatile the public markets have been. You've achieved the same level of outperformance regardless. Because there's a difference, right? When you're within the public markets, there's the pressure of the market overall. There's also the pressure of investors, correct? Like publicly held entities, there's a different kind of pressure that's out there. And we track it minute by minute, day by day, month by month. That's one of the single biggest differences between the private markets and the public. We don't have to deal with the emotion that you have to deal with in the public (laughs) markets every single day. Whatever's going on today, whatever's been said by a politician, whatever's going, it doesn't impact us because we're marked on a quarterly basis. And, you know, we have some correlation to the public markets, but we do not deal with the emotion on a day-to-day basis. And do you find yourself either giving the advice or, or listening to people's desire to at least change up the allocation a little bit, given, given the volatility? So maybe to go into a little bit longer dated private equity, maybe stay out of hedge funds, maybe go into credit versus equity. How does that mix shape out? So in the second part, we only do private markets. So we don't advise on anything related to hedge funds or public equity. Um, But this is important. Within the private markets, what we talk about is you've got to stay, you have to be consistent about how you commit to the asset class. The single biggest mistake investors make in this space is they try to time the markets. Yeah, I can't time it. You can't time it. Nobody can time it. And in fact, if you want evidence, look at fundraising. Fundraising ramped up into 2008. We put more capital in the private markets than we ever have right at the exact wrong time. So which aspect of the private market universe right now is outperforming? And so um, historically, buyout and credit have been the two areas that have done probably the best on a Mm risk-adjusted basis. Venture's done terrific recently. I think um, the reason you see so many dollars coming into the private markets broadly is that the asset class has done what it's supposed to, and that is outperform the public markets. And so if we look at over the last sort of 20 years or so on the buyout and credit space, in almost every year, 
the private markets have outperformed the public markets. There's a lot of money going into credit right now. Does that worry you that, that maybe the returns won't be there because it's getting more competitive and getting more crowded? It doesn't. Um, and the main reason there is there, there is a lot of money. So the dry powder today is something like 130 or $140 billion. Let's put it in context. The leverage loan market is a trillion-dollar yeah. market. The, the high-yield market is a trillion or a trillion and a half. If you just think about the equity that's out there, uh, ready to be put to work in deals, that's going to need more than a trillion dollars. So while it has grown, it is still such a small mm. percentage of the overall market. So I have one last quick question, just about 30 seconds. The private markets and the, the amount of money that I think about, especially for startups and venture, how is that maybe skewing valuations and the viability of a company? Because there is so much money out there. I just think about how the Uber IPO has gone, and I'm just curious what you're saying. Just got about 25 seconds. Yeah, so uh, valuations today is a, a significant concern. Um, what you're finally starting to see on the venture side is money coming back to investors. It's been a good place uh, recently. Uh, and while valuation is a concern today, private equity managers have shown over history that there are lots of different ways that they can make money. And remember that they put capital to work over multiple years. So we're concerned about valuations, but over a long period of time, they've shown that they can make money in lots of different environments. Jeff Meeker, what a treat. Chief Client Officer for Hamilton Lane based down in Philadelphia here with us in New York. Yes, we are definitely talking about uh, oil, certainly found in the ground. One story that can also be found on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com is about how big oil is investing billions in potentially worthless projects. Here to tell us about it, Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, along with Pat Regnier, markets and finance editor at Businessweek, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Pat, kick it off. What are we talking about? So the idea here is that uh, we have these uh, big energy companies. They are uh, constantly spending money on finding reserves, proving reserves, buying equipment. Uh, All told, uh, by 2025, we're looking at about uh, $5 trillion or just shy of that in uh, investment and CapEx. And uh, there are some people who think that um, if effective action was taken to uh, keep uh, global warming below two degrees Celsius, uh, that about a third of that uh, investment would be wasted. And they're sort of trying to flash a warning light to investors that people need to start paying attention to this and valuing it in their portfolios. So, Joel, is this just one of these times over the course of business history where big companies essentially get caught in a massive dislocation and and transition and and the economics get trickier like what's going on we'll we'll find out yeah um i i think that's the 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 most interesting thing about this is in the past we've known that this stuff in the ground is worth something right and now it's sort of like okay what what is the return on this investment yeah and you know to get it out now and pay the price of not only getting it out but what about the climate implications it's a really interesting conundrum that you know resource extraction i think really finds itself in the crosshairs over well because pat i mean these are companies in some i feel like i at least overuse this like these this is another industry and set of companies sort of in a state of existential crisis like they don't they don't know what they necessarily want to be they don't know who what people want them to be what investors want them to be even consumers they're getting mixed signals from governments and and so it must be not, well, i mean com- i'm crying a river but they're like, waiting for a signal right yeah. and they need a signal from policymakers if i decide not to take that oil out of the ground but nobody's telling me not to do it that means my competitor might take that oil out of the ground so one of the things that people in this space say is like we actually need regulation to make this clearer to to the companies. Climate change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we really are moving towards these very different policies, and if we really want to slow climate change, 
it's going to impact all of these companies really dramatically. I mean, now, some of the companies themselves actually will publish reports saying, actually, even if uh, climate change was held below that uh, two-degree marker that uh, people say we need to stay, stay below, uh, you know, our investments still make sense. Now, you can read between the lines on that. The fact that they are putting in reports that our investments still make sense, even if climate change is held below two degrees, says they're listening to this idea. They're right. hearing people talk about it with right. them. It, so much so that, you know, my favorite thing about this is this term that was coined, stranded asset. Right. Uh, where, where did that come from? Well, so that came from an organization called uh, Carbon Tracker, and they, they're like a financial think tank. We should probably say for disclosure that they've received funding from Bloomberg Philanthropies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they've come up with this idea that's kind of trying to put a number on it, saying these are assets that these companies that you're investing in have that if, if the necessary action was taken, in their view – these these assets are not going to be worth anything and you as an investor trying to decide like you know what am i going to pay in terms of like a price book value for this company right the fundamentals change right so the math on all of this changes as well that's right and um and then there's an argument about whether this is actually fully reflected in prices and so joel how do you continue to tell this story because it's it's fast moving complicated so how do you pick your spots on sort of climate and the and the intersection of climate and big oil for lack of a better term uh, i think part of it is looking at it from a company perspective yeah. right and obviously there's been a pretty big deal in the works recently that's changed hands a couple times in Andarco. and i think in a way like this kind of gets to part of that yeah. right of like how do you value these assets you know the the lng play of that uh, merger of that acquisition yeah. was largely to get some LNG exposure. And in a way, you can kind of like link that to this because it's like, how do you value these assets? And, and ones that, in a lot of these, like, you know, we don't, we don't actually know what it's going to take to get it out of the ground. Like, yeah. we're talking major investments that could be five, five years at the shortest, like, probably much closer to like 10 or 20. So to me, it, you, you can tell the story really well through the eyes of a company. We also don't know how long it's going to take. There's a line in the story about how long well, it takes for us to wean us off all of these fossil fuels, right? We all think it's going to be, or we I feel like some of the headlines are like, oh, maybe it's sooner than we all thought. It still could be years away. Oh, it's absolutely the case that, you know, even even the organizations that are talking about stranded assets say that, you know, trillions of dollars are in sort of the baseline scenario and in, are going to be spent just to kind of continue anything even close to the status quo. Um, and then I think the other tricky thing is you have uh, discoveries of oil and technology mm-hmm. are part of this race. So, you know, one of the mm-hmm. responses that some of these companies have to ideas like stranded assets is they'll, they'll say, you know what, we've, we've found reserves of oil where we can make it economic for right. under $40 a barrel. Yeah. I think yeah. stranded assets was Joel's garage band. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a great <laughs> yeah, one. It's I a would, great one. Totally. I'd play in that. Stranded I'd play bass assets. in that. <laughs> All right, Pat Regnier is Markets and Finance Editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber, of course, is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Over in China, every CEO, it feels like Carol, is being asked these mm-hmm. days about the implications of this U.S.-China trade war. Well, Tom McKenzie, Bloomberg's own Tom McKenzie, caught up with Morgan Stanley, Chairman and CEO Morgan, uh, James Gorman, excuse me, at the Morgan Stanley China Summit. Here's what he had to say. 40% of the world's GDP is tied up in these two countries. To have a major trade war would be very bad for both countries. Everybody understands that, I think. I certainly hope that they do. 
Um, certainly U.S. CEOs that I talk to understand it, Chinese CEOs I talk to understand it. So, you know, what, what we've got is there's, there's a resetting of this relationship, which makes sense. After 30 years of incredible economic growth in China, there needs to be a resetting. There are certain things on the trade side that need to be addressed, are being addressed. Do I think this is going to devolve into, um, you know, as a betting man into a full trade war? No, I don't, because there's too much self-interest in keeping this thing on the rails. The question is, some people have said to me, if it doesn't happen by the G20, which I think is late June, we have a problem. I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about the exact timing of when we need some form of resolution, but clearly the negotiators need to come to the table and figure this out. Not everything. That will take decades to get done. But we need to get the train back on the tracks. What are the global economic implications if we do get a full-blown trade war, as in Trump pulls the trigger on an additional 25% tariffs on those $300 billion worth of Chinese goods? Well, I think, I think frankly, a lot of that is priced in. I mean, what you, what you said about, uh, you know, where the tenure is right now, uh, what you said where the S&P has been moving, um, unfortunately, it's not in isolation. We've got Brexit going on uh, in the background. Uh, there are other things, the U.S. Uh, political environment, the elections coming up. So there's, there's a lot of macro noise right now. I can't predict exactly what will happen if, if that 250 billion tariff uh, number kicks in. But the bottom line is the, the two largest economies in the world do not uh, serve themselves well by engaging in a full-blown trade war. The U.S. runs a surplus in services. China runs a surplus in goods. There needs to be more adjustment, more transparency, particularly about technology transfer, and we need to get this thing back on the tracks. Back on the tracks, indeed. That certainly seems to be the message that we're getting from a lot of CEOs. And, you know, it goes right to this story that's among the most read, which is this question of, are we entering a, a Cold War? Certainly, the James Gormans of the world do not want one. Well, think about the conversation we had with David Abney of UPS, the one that we had with Chuck Robbins of Cisco, this whole idea that at some point as a company you have to make decisions, whether it's about your supply chain, uh, how you move things around the world, where you have them made, and a lot of those decisions, what technology you choose or what technology companies you choose to work with on a, a project or a next iteration or generation of some technology, and those things, once they're set in place, they often stay around those cycles for years, right. and you cannot change them. And so that's what you think about in terms of a lasting impact of this U.S.-China trade war, at least potentially. All right. You can check out that entire interview with Chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley, James Gorman, at Bloomberg.com. I'm driving my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Our guest on this Thursday, Dryden Pence, back with us, economist and chief executive officer, Pence Wealth Management, approximately $1.4 billion in assets under management, based in Newport Beach, California. The weather just couldn't take it being beautiful day after day, so we decided to come to the East Coast <laughs> and join us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back with us. I'm thinking about, uh, as an economist, what do you make of this economic environment and throw in kind of Fed policy and how long the market cycle, the economic market cycle has gone on for. 
Well, thank you for having me. Well, one, one thing's really interesting is, you know, growth doesn't die of old age. Uh, you know, ex- expansions don't get die don't of old age. Don't say that. The, don't the, say the, it. Don't the, go there. The, well, but the, but the point, the point but generally there's a policy thing that happens that ends or creates an end to growth. And so we think this is going to continue to go for a while. Uh, as What's long a while? As, when a people while. say that, what does oh, that mean? At, at this point, a while is 24 to 36, 48 months. I mean, you have to kind of take – you want to try to take a look out about we, – we try to take a look 24 months out because – most of our clients are retirees, and we're trying to think about what's you know really a little bit farther, not the next quarter, but more like 24 months, and how do they make decisions, how do we make decisions for them. So we kind of are always looking that far out. So we don't see a recession uh, in the next 24 months or, 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 or really kind of after that unless there's a major change in policy. We think that what's really gone on at this point is you have the Fed on hold for a while. They went too far too fast. Uh, they probably they're not going to we don't think they're going to do anything for a while because you have to let the economy continue to grow with it but the fundamentals are, are moving that forward so feds on hold for a while we don't think there's going to be any major changes in washington because they're not going to spontaneously break out in cooperation and kumbaya so we think that the fed federal government's on hold for a while yeah. too so just fundamental economics are going to move us forward the big issues are going to be trade in china uh, and whether or not that creates a lot of headline risk. Right. All right. So let's talk about that specifically and, and one specific headline, which is around Huawei. I mean, that has probably hit the market and hit the sentiment of the market yeah. and given people a sense of, oh, OK, this is real like this because that's a real company. It's a real big company. And so. As you start to feather that through your investment thesis, how do you look at that, both as a specific instance, but also what it represents? Well, Huawei is is kind of a collateral. In our mind, it's a collateral damage of a bigger conflict that's going on between the U.S. and China. So we're negotiating this trade war uh, via headlines. It's no longer a skirmish. It's a little more serious. Uh, But I think that that Huawei is just one example. So everyone is looking for the weapon system that they're going to use in this conflict uh, of how they're going to fight it. And that's one of the ones that we have to deal with. But I think that that's just a lot of this is going to create multiple volatility in the market over the next several months. All right. So that's interesting. Are you adjusting any kind of investment strategies yet because of the trade war going on longer than everybody thought? Well, yes. I mean, the, 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 the short answer is we look at uh, you know, we're going to have some volatility, okay, and, and we want to take advantage of it rather than be its victim. Right. So we've increased our fixed income and cash allocations a little bit to be in advance of that so we have uh, resources to, to really – the old adage of dry powder, right? So that yeah. we've, we've got some money on the sidelines because we think volatility is going to occur. Things are going to go on sale, and and don't you hate it when something goes on sale and you don't have the money to buy it? They're right. on sale right now, yeah. and they've come down a bit, but not enough yet. We we think that that there's more to go, okay. uh, and and a lot of it's just kind of driven by this overreaction. So there's companies that we have have looked at that we really like that are really not affected by all of this global stuff, but they're really focused inside the U.S. economy, and we like those companies. They're not as dependent on global trade 
Now, if they're part of an ETF or something, the market's going to take them down too, and that gives us an even better opportunity to buy those ones that are insulated away from this global trade thing. All right, so let's talk about some of those names. Disney is one you like, and we've seen a lot of pictures, including from our colleague Ed Ludlow, out at the new massive 14-acre Star Wars land land at Disneyland. how is Disney positioned right now? We think Disney is positioned exceedingly well. You know, one third of the total U.S. box office is now controlled by Disney. I mean, with bringing is Fox it really? on, yes, with with bringing, U.S. box office, yes, yes, and okay. and when you think of of of, of that. We're going to continue to do those things. The theme parks are doing well. Star Wars is a great franchise. They're, they're bringing, bringing the, the Fox Library in. They have this great, tremendous historical library and franchises that they can take. So we think Disney is well positioned to weather whatever storms trade come up with because bottom line is most of their income is really coming through the United States. And, and people are going to continue. And Star Wars is, is obviously a, a great thing at the theme parks. How much of your like with Disney? is Bob Iger? I think they strategically, I mean, the short answer is a lot of it, but Disney has a fabulous bench. I mean, they developed their executives over generations and many, many years. They have a great training program and they develop and but they train people. they had a couple people. people who were said to be successors to Bob. And of course, Bob chose to, to stay around a little bit. But those guys have, I think, in most cases moved on. Well, people manage, people manage their own careers how they choose. What we have to look at is the company as a whole. Yeah. So they have a good habit of developing deep bench. Uh, and they've been successful in doing that. They kind of, de- you know, they have a great library of executives. They have a great library <laughs> of films. So, can we talk Amazon? Because we just had Absolutely. the UPS CEO on, and we talked to him about specifically Amazon. Jason asked him a really smart question, like, you know, how do you see them? Friend of me? Like, are they friend or foe? Um, tell us a little bit about the Amazon play and what you think about them. Well, we like Amazon a lot. I mean, obviously, web services is is what provides a lot of their profits. But when you think about, they, you know, fifty percent of Americans start an online uh, shopping experience by looking at Amazon first. Yeah. When you when you think about it's the online shopping is the fastest growing part of retail and they are so dominant in that space. 20% of the uh, of, of all of the transactions are run through Amazon. So they have really all of the right dominance. You can't you can't really do online shopping without considering them one way or the other. So we think very long term they're going to continue to to play this uh, and you know for UPS and FedEx and some of those other companies, they're going to have to kind of it, it, maybe it's a frenemies thing, but basically it's who's the customer and who has customer buyers leverage. Yep, uh, and that's that's the thing they're going to have to deal with. Uh, but I think long term, it continues to be fabulous for the U.S. economy. Always great to catch up with you, Dryden Pence, economist, chief executive officer at Pence Wealth Management. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.